0: Welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. As a first-time host of the podcast, I'm thrilled to be discussing a topic that is near and dear to many ID hearts and minds, Clostridioides difficile. We love it. We hate it. We debate about it at conferences. Anyone remember the great ID debates of 18 at ASHP mid-year, Anybody? But with an anticipated update of the C. difficile guidelines coming in 2021, we have some great new topics to discuss to bring you the new scoop on poop. This episode of Breakpoints has been sponsored by an unrestricted medical grant from our partners at Cepheid. While Cepheid graciously supported this episode, they did not participate in its development or production. Cepheid offers a full range of molecular tests that enable fast screening and accurate diagnosis. Optimize antimicrobial stewardship and therapy management through highly accurate results with Cepheid's on-demand solutions. So today I have three expert panelists joining me on the podcast, Dr. Mandolin Cooper, Dr. Kevin Gary, and Dr. Kelly Rebellis. First I'll introduce Dr. Gary. He's Chair of the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Translational Research and Professor of Pharmacy at the University of Houston College of Pharmacy in Houston, Texas. Additionally, he holds an academic appointment as adjunct professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health in Houston. He is a co-author on the 2017 Infectious Diseases Society of America and Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, C. difficile guidelines, and you can find him on Twitter at Gary K. Gary. Hello, Rachel. Next is Dr. Mandolin Cooper. She is the director of clinical pharmacy for HCA Healthcare, a large healthcare system with over 185 hospitals in 20 states throughout the US. She has a background in infectious diseases and is the pharmacist lead for stewardship for the healthcare system. Her expertise is in systems, processes, and practical antimicrobial stewardship. Hi Rachel. Last we have Dr. Ravellis. She's an assistant professor of pharmacotherapy at the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy, them Horns. She also holds an academic appointment as an adjoint assistant professor at the University of Texas Health San Antonio School of Medicine. Kelly Ravelis has received research grants from AstraZeneca and Merck Incorporated, and you can find her on Twitter at Kelly Ravelis. Hi, Rachel. I'm so happy to have all of y'all here. Thanks for joining me. And for those that don't know, at ID Week last year, attendees were treated to a preview of an upcoming update to the 2017 IDSA-SHEA C. difficile guidelines. If you did register for ID Week, you can view the session IDSA Case-Based Clinical Guideline Overview and Update until October of this year, so you can still catch that. This update is part of IDSA's new aim to provide interim rapid updates of practice-changing evidence to providers as it's published. Since 2017, new evidence on the optimal management of CDI has become available, and this update helps to provide some answers to several controversial questions, which I'm excited to discuss here today. So, let's get into it. In the last iteration of the CDI guidelines from 2017, Fidaxomycin was a new addition and listed as a first-line alternative to vancomycin. Since then, two additional randomized controlled trials in adults comparing Fidax versus PO Bank have been published, and now, drumroll please, Fidaxomycin is being promoted as first line above vanc for treatment in these preliminary guidelines. Kevin, could you talk about the thinking and evidence behind this change and where oral vancomycin now fits in?
1: Uh, Sure, I'd happy to. So a little history lesson to start. Anyone who's followed C. diff over the years knows historically, meaning 1980s, 1990s, you would use one of two antibiotics, metronidazole or oral vancomycin, and it it was equally as good. Both cured them fairly well had a high recurrence rate. In other words, it came back again, but nothing you can do about it. You just chose the two. And then in the early 2000s, there was a lot of notice that metronidazole wasn't working as well as it used to anymore. And so the previous iterations, the 2010 guidelines kind of marginalized it, said only for mild to moderate disease. And with these new guidelines in 2017 guidelines, that trend continued and got worse. So it's kind of like, don't use metronidazole unless you really, really have to based on some really good data at the time. So that left us with vanco or fidaxomycin. And then back to the history lessons a little bit, like the early 2000s, I recognized that the original randomized controlled trials with fidaxomycin showed them to be the same as vanco at, at stopping that initial diarrhea. And the real magic of fidaxomycin was preventing recurrences. Now for a whole variety of reasons, one of them like no one's ever thought about trying to prevent recurrence ever, a little bit hefty price tag with a brand of the antibiotic, that didn't really sink in very well. So it was kind of like, well, choose whatever you want from those prior guidelines. Now, since the 2017 guidelines has been a really interesting way to use fidaxomycin, something called the EXTEND trial, we can talk about later, but a well-done study. Phase three study happened to be done in Japan. And so you can put all that data together and fast forward in time where we know recurrence is more important than maybe we historically thought about it. And that overwhelmingly supports fidaxomycin, not for an initial clinical cure, but to prevent it from coming back. And a better appreciation of that, even more data, and sort of the format that the IDSA shake guidelines are now using, specific PICO format, really made it apparent that fidaxomycin should be first line to prevent recurrences, to sustained clinical response. Doesn't mean you can't use Vanco, certainly can, especially in areas where you can't get it. It's a tried and true method, and it's certainly effective at stopping that initial diarrhea.
2: I'll just reiterate the importance of recurrence that Kevin mentioned. So, You know, I think a lot of us don't always appreciate how common it is. You know, the national average is about fifteen percent, maybe twenty percent of all patients who have an initial clinical cure of CDF will actually have a recurrence. But in some of your more high-risk patients, it may be upwards of thirty percent or more. And of course, once you have a patient who's had one recurrence, they're at even higher risk for future recurrence. So, just want to reiterate that that's a really important outcome that we have for assessing CDF and our treatments. And, you know, just to tack on as well, the new proposed 2020 guidelines will also support Fidaxomycin in recurrent episodes because of similar data showing a reduction in future recurrences with Fidaxo. However, the data aren't quite as robust in recurrences just because we have mostly subgroup analyses of clinical trials, a little bit smaller sample sizes, so a little bit less precise estimates of those.
3: Rachel, I agree. The literature is changing. It's really more supportive of fidoximycin than it has been in the past. And it'll be interesting how it's laid out in the new guidelines as should we be using vancomycin at all? Or is it going to go by the wayside like metronidazole over time where you don't use it unless you absolutely have to. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how this all lays out in the guidelines.
0: Thanks, you guys. I expect this will be a major change for many institutions, especially for my institution, just given the higher cost of fidaxamycin, which is why I think it hasn't been universally adopted as the preferred first-line therapy already. Since the average wholesale price for fidaxomicin is $500 a day versus roughly $20 a day for PO Bank suspension. Kelly, what do you think about the cost-effectiveness of fidaxomicin versus PO Bank?
2: So I think this is a really important question because the drug acquisition costs can be pretty intimidating, but there's other things we have to consider when evaluating if Fidaxo is cost-effective. So, you know, as we talked about earlier, Fidaxomycin has been shown to prevent recurrences over vancomycin in patients with C. diff, and recurrences can be really expensive to diagnose and treat. We have prior studies showing that up to half of patients who recur will require rehospitalization, and those rehospitalizations may cost on average about $12,000. So, my research group led a 2017 cost effectiveness analysis that compared first line use of fidaxomicin to vancomycin for patients experiencing a primary episode of C. diff. And we use a combination of the phase three fidaxomicin clinical trials and then other real world data. And when you consider both the drug acquisition costs plus direct medical costs from the hospital perspective, we actually found that the overall cost of treating C. diff with fidoxomycin was about the same as the use of vancomycin at about $14,000 for each regimen. And then we actually noted cost savings with fidoxomycin in patients with cancer and those on concomitant antibiotics. And this is just because in the clinical trials, we saw a little bit greater effect sizes and the reduction in clinical failures and recurrence rates in these specific subgroups. There was also a second cost-effectiveness analysis conducted by Watt and colleagues in 2016 very similar in that they compared first-line fidaxomycin to vancomycin for initial C. diff episodes, but this study was from the payer perspective in Germany. And this study also found that fidaxomycin was cost-effective with an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio ranging from about 32000 to $52,000 per quality adjusted life year gain, specifically for these certain subgroups at high risk for recurrence. And just similar to our study, actually found cost savings for patients with cancer. So overall, both of these studies did demonstrate cost-effectiveness of fidaxomycin as first-line therapy, but there are certainly limitations to these studies. Cost-effectiveness analyses are only as good as the model inputs that you use, and neither of these studies accounted for indirect medical or non-medical costs, so that's something to consider for future studies. And I also think it's important to note that the cost to the patient will be highly dependent on insurance coverage and access to patient assistance programs. So that's something else we need to consider as we choose first-line therapy for our patients.
1: I could just pipe up maybe with another short little story. Sometimes we think about too much of the cost, prevention of recurrence and that sort of stuff. But C. diff is no fun. It, nobody likes having it. And, oh, we'll just treat it again means a patient has to go through it again. And if you said, Well, I'm going to give you a drug, and one out of four chance you're going to get that exact same thing you have right now, that's unacceptable. That's like unacceptably high. And honestly, like one in eight is unacceptably high too. And that's with the new super drug. So I think sometimes we do lose the patient perspective too, and we should bring that into the conversation as often as we can as well.
0: I agree that is something that sometimes get lost in all of the higher-up health system conversations, Um, but it is something we need to keep in mind, is that's what all healthcare institutions strive for, is optimal care of our patients and making sure they have the best experience. Thanks, Kelly, for that awesome review of the cost-effectiveness data, because it is also nice to have some objective cost data in hand to be able to take to our healthcare system leadership when we're trying to make the case for the best agent based on the evidence. Going along with that, Mandolin, what factors around fidaxomycin and C. diff do you expect to consider for your large health system when these guidelines are officially published?
3: There's a lot of things to consider. Kelly brought up some very good points and is definitely the expert on the pharmacoeconomic analysis of this. So I don't want to pretend that I know all those details like she does, but I do appreciate that her analysis was not siloed for one department. Sometimes whenever we do analyses, it's just for one department or one group. It depends on what perspective you're looking at. So when you look at something for a health system or your individual hospital, you really need to look at it, what it looks like across the entire facility, not just your pharmacy department, not just length of stay, not just infection prevention, but you need to look at everybody. So when we look at it from a healthcare system, we also have to take into account which patients we see. All recurrence patients don't necessarily come back to the hospital. So whenever we do that in a hospital setting or a facility, we often look at, okay, so this is the percentage that we see that are recurrent. And those patients, as Kelly will probably tell you, cost a whole lot more. Those that end up going to the hospital versus those who have recurrence and do not. So what does that look like? And what are our percentages on that? And then how do we measure this out? Something that often happens and we do have to do as well is figure out who's going to pay the price. Because anytime it costs more, is it going to be, you know, the pharmacy department gets more of the budget? Is it the facility gets it because you have a longer length of estate? stay? Where does it actually get divided up? So each health system really needs to evaluate their overall cost, who is responsible for it in their budget, and then needs to look at the whole thing as a whole, not in pieces, in order to understand the potential impact. I think Kelly also brought up another point that was really important, is we need to evaluate if our patients can afford these medications. And that's actually one of my concerns with vancomycin being listed as only use if resources are not available. Because that sort of implies that you only use it if fidoxomycin is backordered, or it's completely unavailable. And so some people, sometimes as pharmacists, were very black and white. <laughs> you know, if it's there, I'm going, I should be using it. But what happens if our patients can't afford it? When metronidazole was removed as an option for C. diff, many patients struggle to afford the medications when they were discharged. Oral vancomycin is not cheap either. So often if their choices were oral vancomycin or phadoxomycin, some just chose not to finish their course of therapy, which doesn't help the recurrence rates, which doesn't help their patient outcomes either. Hopefully, if this comes to fruition, hopefully, if this becomes part of the guidelines, insurance companies will cover it and there will be some form of assistance programs for those who are uninsured or cash payments.
0: Yeah, Mandolin, thanks. I relate to that. I've had many cases where my patients had difficulty affording the end of their prescriptions when they were discharged from the institution. And around that time where I was practicing, a lot of the medical teams had already adopted oral vancomycin before it had officially come out as preferred over oral metronidazole. So affording those discharge prescriptions were a big issue. Let's move on to a next proposed change in the guidelines, and this is in regards for a recurrent C. diff infection. In the 2017 guidelines, first recurrences were recommended to be treated with tapered and pulsed oral vancomycin or standard-dose fidaxomicin. And second or more recurrences were recommended to be treated with tapered and pulsed PO-VANC followed by rifaximin or standard-dose fidaxomicin. I personally have never used the Rifaximin regimen, so I'm interested how many people went with that one. But the new proposed guidelines now recommend standard or extended pulse dosing of fidaxamycin over standard dosing of po for all recurrent CDI episodes. Kevin, what's the thinking behind this proposed recommendation?
1: Sure. So uh, this starts with a little pathophysiology review to help you understand the EXTEND study, which is always fun. So remember, C. diff is a microbiome disease. We give a high-risk antibiotic for another reason, hopefully for a true infection, that that kills that infection off, but it also harms the good bugs that live in our gut, our microbiome. Cool kids now call that dysbiosis. So you're going to be at risk for C. diff infection as long as that dysbiosis sticks around, which is generally one month, two months, or three months to resolve depending on who you're asking and who you are. In addition to that, the spores of C. diff, sort of the innate dormant stuff of C. diff, are very hardy. And those spores can stick around in your gut for a long time, once again, as long as that dysbiosis happens. And it's only when they germinate can you kill them. Pathophysiology done, back to the extended study. So one way to get around that then is to give the exact same number of pills, but do it over an extended time period. So instead of giving it over 10 days, you give it over, for example, a month. And so that's what the EXTEND study did. 200 milligrams twice a day for five days. And then from day six to 26, give just one pill, but give it every other day. That's going to be allow your microbiome to restore healthy, get rid of the dysbiosis. Any spores that are around, they germinate and you kick the crap out of them with fadaximycin. So that's great. So the good thing about that is should we lower your recurrence rate even more? And that's what this extended study demonstrates. Now, from a pk standpoint with these non-absorbable antibiotics, there's only one clearance route. That's diarrhea out the back door, essentially. And so the critique on this study, if you're still symptomatic at day five, and you're going to switch to an every other day regimen, that's fine. If you're like, having a bowel movement once a day. But if you still have active diarrhea, maybe the extended study is not for you. Wait until symptoms resolve and then consider this novel dosing strategy. That's the one caveat I would put in the extended study is make sure your diarrhea has mostly resolved before you switch to the every other day regimen. Open label, that was the only other critique on it. Recurrence is somewhat subjective, trying to distinguish whether somebody has just random diarrhea versus C. diff. diarrhea is not the easiest thing in the world to do. But with that one exception, well-executed study and worthy of guideline inclusion.
0: Great. Kevin, I agree. That was very fun. I always love a good review of of pathophys. It always helps me to understand concepts better. Kelly, where does this new recommendation leave extended pulsed and tapered dosing of oral vancomycin?
2: I don't think it's gone forever. So I take this recommendation similar to the recommendations for standard dosing regimens. Fidoxo is preferred because it's likely more efficacious in improving sustained clinical response and preventing future recurrences. but VANC would still be acceptable if you cannot get Fidaxomycin or it's cost prohibitive for the patient. So we do have some some good prior data, though not super robust, supporting the extended tapered or pulse regimens with VANC described in the last iteration of the CDF guidelines. But like Kevin mentioned, One of the primary reasons we use these regimens is to allow your normal gut microbes to restore while keeping C. diff active antibiotics on board. And since fidaxomycin's more narrow spectrum compared to VANC, it should allow for quicker recovery of normal gut microbes compared to VANC, which has that broader anaerobic coverage. So it's likely that the extended fidaxomycin regimen would prevent more future recurrences compared to extended dose VANC. But to date, we don't have any head to head comparisons for those regimens. And I'll also just add, since we talked about cost-effectiveness studies for the standard dosing regimens, that we do have a couple cost-effectiveness studies based on the extended data. By Cordelia and colleagues and Rubio Tedes and colleagues. And both of these studies compared the cost effectiveness of the extended dose fidaxomycin to standard dose bank and did find that the higher drug acquisition costs of fidaxo were offset by the lower rehospitalization costs due to lower incidence rates of recurrences with fidaxomycin. So overall, the extended dosing fidaxomycin does appear cost effective, but again, no head to head trials that would support cost effectiveness for both extended dosing regimens.
0: It's good to have that clarification thanks Kelly because I know there are some people out there who do hold their bank pulse and taper regimens near and dear to their heart so an interesting field of future study it sounds like. Now this proposed update for this year will not offer any new recommendations for use of fecal microbiota transplant from the last iteration of the guidelines which recommends fecal microbiota transplants, or FMTs, for patients with multiple recurrences of CDI who have failed appropriate antibiotic treatments. But Kevin, where do you think the role of FMT lies in light of this new anticipated guideline update?
1: Well, I'll start off the concept of microbial restoration is awesome. It's amazing. And so if this is a dysbiosis disease, the cure then is anti-dysbiosis, microbial replacement therapy. Sounds fabulous. So first and foremost, concept, awesome. Problem is that F, that F of the FMT runs into trouble in the COVID world, especially. What else is in your fecal microbiota transplantation beyond the stuff that you want? And COVID and other cases, they'll illustrate nicely that could be plenty of other things in there that you don't want in there when you restore your microbiota. I will just briefly mention second generation and arguably third generation microbial therapies are on their way. And it's going to be a spectacular area for pharmacists. Can you imagine PKPD of the bugs you're infusing into your gut? It's going to open up a whole new world for us. I think for now, AFMT, the requirement for a fecal microbiota transplantation could be considered a failure of pharmacology to do its job. You chose poorly. person now has their second or third or fourth recurrence. Now we have to resort to infusing somebody's stool into another person. That sounds like a poor outcome to me personally. Now, for that individual person that the healthcare has failed them, thank goodness it's there because it's life-saving therapy. And I've been part of a number of FMTs. I refer a lot of people in Houston to the person that does it. And nobody says no. When they're in their third and fourth recurrences they sign me up, I couldn't care less how I do it. Just give it to me. And so it's bad consequence of pharmacological therapy and a life-saving medicine with the best is yet to come is how I think I'm going to summarize what I think of FMT.
0: I feel like I just had my mind blown a little bit hearing about what's coming up in the pipeline. That certainly is exciting. Currently at my institution, we perform limited FMTs, but largely in the outpatient setting. So I'm not usually too involved with them, but I do know enough that there are some logistical hurdles to overcome when doing these and arranging them for patients. Mandolin, do you perform FMTs in your health system? And if so, what have some of the challenges been and what's the role of pharmacy? We do, but it depends on which facility
3: and which market and which region that you're in. it really varies from one place to the next. I'm a little biased on FMT. Um, whenever I got out of residency, my first job was in a facility where um, the infectious disease doctors used it regularly. And so it was a normal thing. Now it wasn't every day or anything, but you know it was a normal thing that was done and it's very effective. It works very well, but you're right. There's a lot of logistics that we have now that early on when I was out of residency that weren't there. Some of these are legal things. So FMT is considered an unapproved biologic product by the FDA. So as a result, if you're outside of a qualifying clinical trial, you can't bill for this. There's no ability to bill for routine cost for the FMT product. And that includes donor and recipient services. That could include the colonoscopy if it's only for the FMT. It could be all the lab things that are done, which as Kevin had mentioned, we have a concern of transmitting MDROs or bloodborne pathogens that way. So you have to do testing to make sure you're doing it right. You also have to be careful that you're not giving the patients, the donor still includes C. diff in it. So you have to do all that type of testing, which can be pretty onerous for the facility, depending on where you're having this done. There's also some fun parts with the logistics as far as where do you store it? In an inpatient setting, my opinion, I'm not a fan of storing this in the inpatient pharmacy, primarily because we make a lot of aseptic products there. And any cross-contamination just is not something I think we should be dealing with. (laughs) So I think storage is an issue. The most difficult part, though, is who's going to make the product. So you collect the donor stool, which the donor will can either be a commercial product, which is much easier, or you have a donor who provides the FMT to be given. And then it has to be made into a slurry. It has to be filtered. It has to be put into an a bag. And then it has to be given to the patient. Nurses will usually give it after it's in the bag. But most of your nurses will say, I'm not doing the rest of that. And then is that pharmacy? Is that dietary services? Is it the physician that ordered it? Some facilities have gone to the point where the clinician that orders it, they actually ask to be responsible for all of those things. And if they do that like in an inpatient setting or something like that, clinicians, if they get to that point, they're willing to do that sometimes because the patient needs it so badly. Or there's someone in the facility they're able to work with in order to do this. So finding someone to do it, storing which product are you going to use and which donor. There's commercial and donors products that are available. The commercial product by Open Biome, is actually fascinating. If you go to their website, they have a lot of great information about which patients should get it, what patients should be aware of, what the healthcare provider should know, step-by-step instructions. It's a nonprofit organization, but it's fascinating when you look at it. The most interesting one is not only is everything come pre-prepared for you, there are now capsules available. And so that may be something that's much more palatable to, there's no pen intended on that. For the patients, you know, that it might be something that they're more willing to try earlier, or there may be more clinicians willing to do that.
0: Yes. Now, the real question is, are they capsules or are they crapsules? <laughs> yes. And We continue these puns, aren't we? Yes, of course. C. diff. I feel like that's the best infection for puns. Mandolin, thanks for that review of all the challenges that you face in your health system and that I'm sure many of our listeners face. I'm hopeful that FMT, as Kevin was saying the story is just beginning, hopefully that this will get a little bit easier for our patients, or maybe we'll have even more products that are more available for people so that this isn't so logistically challenging and we can optimize the use of this therapy. This episode of Breakpoints has been sponsored by our partners at Cepheid. Accurate and early identification of C. difficile infections is crucial for successfully treating patients and reducing severe outcomes and complications. Rapid diagnosis is also essential for implementing contact precautions, preventing transmission, and optimizing antimicrobial stewardship. NAAT-based testing in the context of clinical factors is the only sensitive and specific method for diagnosing CDI. Our partners at Cepheid are available as a resource to help you combat antimicrobial resistance with rapid molecular diagnostics. For more information, please visit www.cepheid.com. So speaking of recurrent CDI prevention, People have been debating where to place bezlotoxumab in the lineup since its approval in 2016. We didn't get any guidance in the 2017 guidelines with it having been so recently approved, but this anticipated update does address the role of bezlotoxumab and recommends it as an adjunct to antibiotic therapy over antibiotic therapy alone in patients with CDI and at least one risk factor for recurrence. They describe those relevant risk factors as being an age over 65 years, being immunocompromised, having severe CDI, or having a prior CDI episode in the past six months. Kelly, what's your take on this recommendation, and when and in who should BESLO be considered versus FMTs for recurrent CDI prevention?
2: Thanks, Rachel. Just as a quick reminder, so bezotuximab is a monoclonal antibody that targets C. diff toxin B, which is one of the main virulence factors that contributes to clinical C. diff infection. It's not an antibiotic, right? So it doesn't kill C. diff, and so it has to be given alongside appropriate antibiotic therapy. It is nice, though. It's given as a one-time 60-minute infusion that's weight-based dosed, and the reason we can do this, it has a long half-life of about 18 days, which means we have Measurable antibody concentrations up to about three months post-dose. And BESLA was studied in two phase three clinical trials called Modified 1 and Modified 2. And BESLA was added to standard of care antibiotics and at the time was predominantly metronidazole and vancomycin. And those were compared to standard of care plus placebo in patients with either a primary recurrent C. diff episode and in pooled analyses of these studies, the addition of Beslow reduced the relative risk of C. diff recurrence at 12 weeks by about 38%, and then C. diff-related hospital readmissions at 30 days by about 54%. Mortality rates and adverse events were pretty similar between groups, but it's interesting to note that these studies found a potential increased risk of heart failure and mortality in patients with pre-existing congestive heart failure. So Bezlo is cautioned in that population, and I wanted to note too that there's been a couple other real-world retrospective cohort studies in the last few years, that have demonstrated similar reductions in recurrence rates with BESLOW. Now, as you mentioned, Rachel, the updated CDI guidelines are specifically recommending the addition of BESLOW to standard of care antibiotics for these specific high-risk populations. So those patients over 65, need those with severe CDF, or those with a prior episode in the last six months. And these were the high-risk groups identified in the phase three trials who had a significantly higher rate of recurrence compared to those without risk factors. And patients, without any of these risk factors actually did not significantly benefit from the addition of BESLO. But for patients that had at least one risk factor, they saw about a 14 percent absolute reduction in recurrences, and those with three or more risk factors had a reduction of about 25 percent. So basically, the more recurrence risk factors the patient has, the more effective BESLO is when added to standard of care antibiotics. Now, I wanted to touch briefly on cost effectiveness since we have a very similar problem of high drug acquisition costs as we do with fidoxomycin. There's been a couple cost effectiveness studies of Beslow published based on the Modify 1 and 2 clinical trials. And these were published both in 2018 by Salivert and colleagues and Prabhu and colleagues. And overall, both of these studies did find that BESLO was cost effective. One found an incremental cost effectiveness ratio of just under $20,000 US dollars per quality adjusted life year gain in the entire population. But in these specific high-risk populations that we mentioned previously, Bezlo is even more cost-effective. So these cost data also support those specific subpopulations that the new guidelines recommend Bezlo use for. But just like Fnaximycin, the cost of the patient is going to be highly dependent on insurance coverage. But it is important to note that Bezlo infusions are covered under Medicare Part B. And given that most of our patients who get CETA for older, Oftentimes, patients are on Medicare. Thanks, Kelly, for
0: that awesome review. Again, I love the cost effectiveness data because it's going to be really useful for me and I think a lot of our listeners too with these proposed new guideline updates. So we'll see what officially comes out when they're published in final form. But because it's given in the outpatient setting most of the time currently, I don't see bezlatoximab used personally since my work focuses mainly on the inpatient side. Mandolin, what are some of the feasibility issues you see with bezlatoximab for all of your pharmacies in your health system? And what might be some strategies to address those in the clinical setting?
3: So, Rachel, we see a similar thing that what you just described. Beslow will not impact the acute illness, so we do place its therapy as outpatient. So there's some challenges with that because patients need to be followed up outpatient with someone who is aware that they need this, who is aware that they have these risk factors and it could be an option for them. In general, we do recommend that it's given in an outpatient infusion center or some form of outpatient clinic type scenario like that. Cost, as Kelly had mentioned, is a barrier to some patients and that is up to their insurance companies. And again, if the guidelines put this as a stronger recommendation, that really does help sometimes. With insurance companies being able to cover
1: this, I can probably chime in with two points. So I was part of the vaccine chaser study that was published a while ago. So I recruited a lot of the patients into those studies, and it was interesting. I'd walk into the door and I'd say, "Hi, I'm here to offer you this life-saving therapy. It might prevent this and that thing." And if it was a first occurrence, and I said, "You have to take this pills for another month," they'd say, eh, well, maybe not. See you later." If it was a first recurrence patient, they would say, "Like, sign me up. Amen. I want it." I think is very similar. I don't see this as so much as a first occurrence drug as probably a first recurrence drug and beyond. I just to mimic what everyone else says it's not an inpatient drug it's an outpatient. Almost everybody continues antibiotic therapy on an the outpatient basis, and therefore you can give it any anytime when you're taking your standard of care antibiotics. That's one. Number two, which is really interesting, we know absolutely who not to give it to. If you don't have any of those risk factors, don't do it. That gets crazy. You're wasting your money. But if you tally up all those risk factors, that's a sizable chunk of the patient population. And so you don't get rid of a whole lot of patients by just saying, if you don't have any of these risk factors, don't do it. There might be a human gene that is predictive of whether or not beslotoximab works. And it's not the gene, but it's the polymorphism in the gene. And this gene is present, like the SNP in the gene is about 50-50 split in the human population. So wouldn't that be cool if you take a high-risk patient population, you could do a saliva sample, pull a hair out of your head if you have any hair left, and genome them, and get a pharmacogenomic marker to predict whether or not bezeltoxinab is going to work or not. The validation studies are happening right now that it was a signal from the phase three trials that has to be validated. And if so, this could be something else that the pharmacy takes up and becomes the pharmacogenomic team, which would be a ball. And when you could put that into your clinical pharmacy services.
0: That's super interesting, Kevin. I'm gonna go ahead and call those 23andMe at home genetic testing right now and tell them which new gene they need to put in there on their next panel update.
1: In there. You could just ask for it. So you're Bezlo ready.
0: Yes, there you go. <laughs> when next...
1: you're when you're 75 years old.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, you know, probably in the next few years, we're all going to have our full genetic typing as soon as we're born. So we'll just have it ready to roll out. Exactly right. Another strategy that some use to prevent initial or recurrent CDI is to use primary and secondary oral vancomycin or fidaxomicin prophylaxis during antimicrobial therapy in certain high-risk individuals. The evidence around this practice is more limited and is not currently addressed in any available guideline. Kevin, are you pro-prophylaxis or con?
1: Well, we should probably devote another 16 to 18 hours to this one particular topic. I am absolutely for primary prophylaxis of C. diff. I think that's something we could achieve. I am absolutely against using vancomycin to accomplish that task. I'll go back to my earlier pathophysiology. This is a dysbiosis disease. And if you ranked all the antibiotics in the world, and said, which one causes the most harm to your microbiome? You would guess Clinda and get the silver medal because the worst one is oral vancomycin. Non-absorbable, concentrations exceeding two to 5,000 micrograms in your gut. Kills everything. It's the nuclear bomb. Now, the one addition to dysbiosis, if the nuclear bomb that causes dysbiosis is also happens to cover C. diff, you're not going to get C. diff while you are also sterilizing the gut because it's sterilizing. Not isn't, but it pretty much is. And so only when you stop that antibiotic will you then be at risk for C. diff. Now, studies have shown that it look in the bottom of your shoes and there's C. diff smiling at you. Probably my pen has it. I'm sure my ear has it. It's an ubiquitous organism. It's all around us. And so it certainly will delay onset of C. diff, but it won't prevent it. The one interesting study recently is a pharmacy colleague of ours named Stephen Johnson. He'll be doing Durham research, but instead he decided to do this really well-executed primary prophylaxis study of the oral vanco Showed benefit. Now, open label, and like I said before, recurrence is sometimes a little hard to distinguish C. diff from any random diarrhea. Really high rates, too. So that's the best evidence. Historical, a guy named Stu Johnson, a physician. Looked at patients colonized with C. diff and gave them metroninazole or VANCO to try to eradicate them. That worked the way it supposed to. It didn't work one little bit. And the rest of the stuff is all observational. So to get off my high horse, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to get rid of that dysbiosis. But I can't FMT everyone. Not ethical. I'd like to get the magic probiotic, but that doesn't have an advantage yet. If I want to use pharmacology, I need something that doesn't cause any dysbiosis at all. Bezlo You can see those eyeballs going up with the money sign. Okay. Can't use that. Then I'd use fidaxomycin. It's still narrower spectrum than vanco. And then I would get to vancomycin. And I actually wouldn't get there until I would never get there actually. (laughs) So that is certainly a high horse for me. That would be my explanation of why it is that way.
2: Wow. Thanks, Kevin. So what about you, Kelly? What do you think? Yeah, so at this point, I'm not super enthusiastic about prophylaxis for a lot of the same reasons that Kevin mentioned. So right now, we just don't know enough about some of the short and long-term negative consequences of using prophylaxis. The secondary prophylaxis approach has only been studied retrospectively, so there are significant limitations to those data. Primary prophylaxis has primarily been studying stem cell transplant patients, as it should. These are some of the most high-risk patients for developing C. diff. While some of these studies actually have some pretty notably large effect sizes in preventing future C. diff recurrences, Uh, I do worry about potentiating the development of antimicrobial resistance to our C. diff agents, which we're already seeing a little bit of even without widespread prophylaxis. And Just like Kevin said, I worry about the collateral damage to the gut microbiome. With prophylaxis, we could be making the situation worse by adding on antibiotics to prevent an infection that's already heavily driven by exposure to antibiotics and disruptions in the microbiome. I do agree if you're going to do it, don't do vank. I would absolutely prefer fidaxomicin over a for that exact reason, just less collateral damage on the microbiome. But for me, I at this time would prefer to Just continue to optimize our antimicrobial stewardship efforts and diagnostic approaches before resorting to adding more antibiotics as prophylaxis.
0: Oh, a different opinion. This is what Breakpoints is all about, getting into the weeds and having these discussions with the experts. Mandolin, what's your take? Are you pro or con prophylaxis?
3: You know, I hate to disagree with Kevin. Kevin says that it's a pop you know, I usually go along with his thoughts for C. diff here, but I'm actually going to agree with Kelly. I'd prefer to optimize the antimicrobial stewardship or diagnostic approaches.
0: Interesting. Thanks for y'all's takes on that, guys. I know that was always a point of contention in my hospitals. Now I'm an antimicrobial steward and antimicrobial stewardship is a passion of mine and of many of our listeners. And we know that stewardship can play a huge role in reducing CDI at our institutions and in the community as well. Mandolin, what are some of the key interventions antimicrobial stewardship programs can implement to reduce CDI?
3: So Rachel, this is such a loaded question. I could be here for the next three or four hours talking about this, but there's some really practical things that we can do in order to help with C. diff. Some of them are the same things we're doing for stewardship already. Deescalation. Deescalation is one of the important things that we need to do. So deescalate antibiotics to narrower spectrum when we're able to, and discontinue antibiotics when they're not needed. It's easy to say that. It's a little bit harder sometimes to do that. So ways to do this is think of deescalation as a team effort. This is not just your ID pharmacist going out trying to do all de-escalation. This needs to be a team effort. So all pharmacists need to be involved. We need to train our physicians and our nurses to de-escalate once cultures are back. You need to engage everyone that this is something that we all are responsible for. Sometimes this does involve negotiation. So don't be afraid of negotiation. Sometimes we have to do some negotiation just to reduce the number of antibiotics, or maybe we stop tomorrow, or we can shorten the duration of therapy sometimes. So the other thing we can do is limit how long we're treating. Some great ways to do this is if you have clinical decision support within your EHR, if you can build some of this in. So whenever an antibiotic is ordered, whether it's on order set or power plan or just ordered on its own, you can put in a duration of therapy automatically. And so you can start with those shorter durations of therapy, which helps us not continue it too long. Other things that are usually low hanging fruit. You have a positive viral culture and the patient is on antibiotics. I know that with COVID, this has been a question of what do we do with all these antibiotics with our patients with COVID? How many secondary infections are there? But you have to look at each individual patient, what's going on. COVID, at least it's very low co-infection rates with bacterial pneumonia. So usually you can reduce those antibiotics. Surgical prophylaxis. Despite the guidelines that came out years ago, that recommend no post-op prophylaxis after closure, it's still there. It still happens in a lot of places. It's one of the things we don't like talking about, but it's still around. So this is one of those things that if you're still using it, it's a good time to talk to your surgeons. There's a lot more experience with it now. There's a lot more of research and publications on this now. So anyone who has been holding out, this is probably a good time to have those conversations. Do we really need to be giving those antibiotics? The other areas you can work on your outpatient areas. So outpatient antibiotics whether you have clinics or the emergency department, the CDC has this great toolkit, the mitigate antibiotic toolkit, and it goes through how to implement stewardship in these areas. The coolest part to me though, is the end. The end has all the metrics spelled out so that you can actually measure this. And it's not just spelled out as you should measure this. It's spelled out like to the ICD-10 level where you can look specifically at these patients, which ones to include, which ones not to include. And so it streamlines your ability to measure To see, are you doing a good job or not? And so that's another place to look. The other option to assist with C. diff is to avoid it in the first place, if you can. So reduce the drugs that the patients are on. If there's drugs that a patient is on that is high risk for C. diff, it's a good idea to try to limit those. We did a study with HCA a couple of years ago that was published in CID, where we looked at 150 of our hospitals and what were the risk factors for them developing C. diff what drugs were there. And then based off of those results, we then targeted those particular therapies to see if we had options for deprescribing. Some of it's prescribing And whenever you talk about H2 and PPIs, it's not actually de-escalating. We'd like to get rid of them altogether. But in our study, we found that at least within our hospital population, H2 and PPIs were high risk for C. diff. We had issues with third-generation cephalosporins. And so we focus specifically on those to ensure that we're helping with de-escalation for third-generation cephalosporins and we're reducing the use of H2s and PPIs. Third-generation cephalosporins is one of those things that physicians consider it low enough sometimes. We went from piperacillin-tazobactam to ceftriaxone, so isn't that low enough? And so having that conversation of, well, you can go down further sometimes is a challenge. But it's something I think we really need to be talking to our clinicians about that it's not low enough. That one still increases your risk of C. diff. So can we narrow even further when possible?
0: Yeah, Mandolin. thanks for that incredibly useful summary of stewardship's role in CDI prevention. A lot of these things come up in my institution every single day, and it's basically the backbone of stewardship and all that we do as stewards are really making a difference for our patients in preventing these terrible secondary infections. Like Kevin said, nobody wants to have C. diff. It definitely is not fun. So I agree with you. I feel like that stewardship's role in preventing CDI could be a whole podcast in itself. So thanks for summarizing that perfectly. Now I'm very excited to pivot to a brand new segment to the podcast. I feel nerdy. I feel nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics Quirks and fun facts—anything their heart desires. But today's I feel nerdy concerns a hotly debated question among ID experts: vancomycin abbreviations. Is it vank or vanco? Kelly, start us off.
2: Well, I'm a vank gal. I don't have a great rationale other than simple, efficient. So just go with it.
0: <laughs> what about you, Mandolin?
3: I'm kind of bad. I use both of them. I don't really have a preference. I guess it depends which one I feel in the mood for that day. I'll use vanco or vanc interchangeably, and fortunately, most of the people I'm communicating with understand what I'm talking about. Okay. What about you, Kevin?
1: I guess for me, like as a teaching point, that if you give intravenous vancomycin by vein, like give it intravenously, it doesn't work for C. Diff. So you have to give it orally. And so I really try to always start that word with oral. And because it starts with an O, oral, I end with an O, banco, so I generally go with oral, banco.
0: Oh, interesting. You know, that's one take I haven't heard before, but that syllable symmetry is very
1: <laughs> Exactly right.
0: I got to say, though, I'm definitely a vanc girl all the way. I agree with Kelly. It's efficient. You drop a syllable, it's one less second you have to spend. So I think the vanks have it, although that was a very close debate. Well, that wraps up our podcast for today. Thank you all so much for being here and sharing your expert insights into C. diff. I've had a great time and have definitely learned a lot that I can take back to my patients and my institution. And I know our listeners have as well. For more Breakpoints talk on C. difficile, make sure to check out our December, 2019 episode, C. difficile, a discussion on patient advocacy with Peggy Lillis Foundation co-founder and executive director, Christian John Lillis. It's a great discussion on opportunities and challenges for patient advocacy and antimicrobial resistance, and I think you're going to love it. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Kevin Gary, Dr. Kelly Rebellis, and Dr. Mandolin Cooper. Our podcast production team also includes Zara Kasamali Escobar, Erin McCreary, Courtney Mock, Sasha Primage, Erica Derricks, Kelly Cole, Anna Zhao, and Julia Gesto. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and for the future.